101.9 FM in Vancouver and on the interweb at www.citr.ca. We've got uh, quite a show for you. We have A Streetcar Named Desire that's starting up next uh, Wednesday. We also have the documentary film Bloodied But Unbowed as well as the Firehall Art Centre is doing its annual fundraiser. We'll get up to speed on that. We have a another documentary coming up on the Knowledge Network. We'll tell you about it. It's called Cartographies. And we have the uh, Fifth Arab Latin Fiesta, and we'll tell you all about that. So there's lots to talk about. Let's get right to it. Now. down there and go to bed. You also want my clothes down here. You shut up. You're going to get the law on you. Stand get your feet on a woman and then call her back because she ain't going to come. You're going to have a baby. Listen, you're I'll say haul you in and turn the fire on you. You're going to have a down here. You stick. Hey, Stella! Hey, Stella! That's Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire from 1951. Now, the Leaky Heaven Circus is doing the Tennessee Williams Classics with, with a very modern local twist. And uh, I'll tell you about it. just want to make sure that my volume is good. Can you hear me? I hope so. Where was I? They've adapted it for East Vancouver, specifically a house. That is, the house will take, that is, the show will take place all over a small house just off of Commercial Drive, and we, the audience, will stand outside and peek in through the windows voyeuristically. It begins next Wednesday and will run until May 22nd. I went over to the quaint home on 820 Woodland Drive, and I spoke to Lois Anderson, a very accomplished Vancouver actor who's won 16 Jesse Awards. 16! for her acting in such works as Salome, Romeo and Juliet, and Devil Box Cabaret. She plays Blanche Dubois in the show, and here is what she had to say to me. Give us a quick idea, maybe for people who haven't, um, who aren't familiar right. with A Streetcar Named Desire. What is that, uh, that, that story? Well, okay, so A Streetcar Named Desire is, is the name of the streetcar that passes through New Orleans... And the play is set in the 1930s, written by Tennessee Williams. And it's a play about um, a, a Polish guy named Stanley and his wife Stella. And Marlon Brando played Stanley in the movie. Most people have... There's an iconic scene in the movie where Stanley... Stan, he has a fight with Stella. He smacks her, and then she runs to the neighbors. And he stands underneath the porch and goes, Stella! Stella! And right. most of us can can see Marlon Brando doing that, right? So that's in that in that story. And um, Stella's sister Blanche shows up and uh, camps out in their house. And she is um, she has heirs. She comes from a they come from old money, and we find out that the money has been lost. And the sister actually isn't leaving, and she doesn't have anywhere to go, and she has a checkered 
recent history, quite checkered, which all comes out. And Stanley and the sister uh, go at it head to head, and they end up in a very uh, um, a possible rape scene, depending on how you look at it. It gets really down and dirty and ugly. And by the end, the sister gets carted off uh, to the insane asylum. And this all happens in the play within about six months. In our play, it will happen in an hour. Mm. In this house that we're sitting in right now. And who do you play? I play Blanche, the one that shows up with the checkered pass that ends up in the insane asylum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. What are some of the challenges for you as an actor with um, to play a woman with many issues? Well, I don't think it's difficult to play a woman with many issues. Most of us have many issues, no matter who we are, gender or age. We have something that we, we know what it's like to hide something that you don't want somebody to know. But I think the difficulty is that there's a class difference here, that this, this sister is comes from moneyed class, and we're, we're setting this play literally in East Vancouver here. We're sitting in this house in East Vancouver. And um, I, uh, so who, who is the moneyed class that would walk into this house and have a feeling that it's important to hang on to class and hang on to... Uh, something higher than East Vancouver. That's what's hard. That's hard to find. Because I'm from East Vancouver. So I have to imagine, well, what is that? Is that, is that somebody from the West Side? I don't know, because my, I, half my family lives on the West Side, and I can relate to them completely. We don't, we don't have the same sort kind of, of rigid class and classes. sense of money. And, um, That's the South. Yeah. Did and does, maybe. And people with money nowadays often, uh, they dress down, they dress trashy, they look they look trashy, the trashy class, right? There's not a, even a style to money, really. Or there is, but it doesn't... So it's kind of hard to find out what that, what that means mm. uh, nowadays for us, you know? Yeah, it sounds like that's one of the challenges of, of putting, um, adapting a show like this that takes place in the South, in the hot South at a particular time, and putting it in 2010... Yeah. In East Van, in a house. Yeah. What are some of the other challenges? Obviously, it's um, it's not in a theater. Right. So what what comes with that? What what are the, some of the challenges you're encountering? Right. So we're inside the house right now. The audience will be outside the house. So that means that anything they see, unless we go out on the porch or the yard or the lane, anything they see will be through the frame of the window. So um, it's almost like a film in that way. It's almost like uh, we have to filmically set up the shots that you're going to see and the angles that you're going to see or what's passing in front of the window because that's the size of your frame in the audience. And then the other thing is that um, we're not going to bellow our way through this. This is a really wordy play that Tennessee Williams wrote. It's beautiful language, beautiful. So I'm not going to be in the house here bellowing out my lines so everyone can hear in the street because then we're not really in a scene. We're doing something very strange. So you're determined then to not necessarily make it theatrical in, in the sense that you're, you're projecting to the back exactly. of the house. You, you really are dedicated to making it feel like it is in the house. Yes, so you will hear... Uh, when our voices raise and you'll hear the screaming or you'll see, you'll get a feeling that there's something in the house. We, we'll be miking the house sometimes. Ah. And we'll have pre things that are possibly recorded um, in advance that we can play. I see. So there'll be a, a different ways of hearing, but that's why I was talking to you about radio because in a way we're really playing with sound here. Sound, the visual is that you're going to see the edge of things as they pass in front, you know, by the curtains or just going out and in. But you're going to hear, like, how do we tell the story audi with audio? 
And how does the audience receive that with audio? Um, let me ask you, uh, going back a bit to you saying one of the challenges is to sort of adapt your character's situation to modern mm-hmm. um, East Van. Tell me a bit how 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 is that happening? You know, for for the play in general, like are all the characters sort of rewritten so that they're local people? First thing, we dropped the accent. So instead right. of talking like like a southern uh, accent, immediately if you drop the accent and start talking the way that you and I are talking, you have a naturalism that immediately just pops you into uh, something different than if you're talking like this and we're, you know, we can still talk at the same tone, but if we have an accent, it's just, it's just, it just, it, it's a slight step away mm, it from you. what we're used to hearing. So that's number one. And uh, number two is um, costume that we're, we're, we're wearing costume now. Like if you saw us walking around the neighborhood, well, not me, I guess, but if you saw Stella and Blan- uh, Stanley walking around the neighborhood, they would just look like they belonged in East Vancouver. And then, um, and then the fun of that then is to decide if there's some point where we want to pop back into the Tennessee Williams world, shift the genre in the middle of the play, pull out the full costumes, the full um, accent, and go out there on the balcony at some point, you know, do a lighting, do, and actually do it for five minutes or ten minutes in the middle of the play, just to say there, there's that thing. That's the, what that thing looks like. Oh. And then drop it and go. Like, that's the other thing is you can shift genre if it if it if it uh, helps the audience if it takes them somewhere, mm-hmm. yeah, if it adds a piece yeah. to the story. This is the way he wrote it. This is how these people talk. Let's do it fully out. We'll just do it fully out there, in the past, and then pop back in. Because I think the thing is, sometimes when we when we look at a classic piece, we um, sometimes we feel like we're looking at a world that existed before that we can look at, it's like looking at a museum piece, it's beautiful to look at, we can learn about something by looking at it, but it's very distant from our world. So the fun is, if we just speak in natural voice, does Tennessee Williams, does his language come out of my mouth? It's very poetic. He and writes, does it? Um, Somewhat. He's very poetic. Mm-hmm. People, we don't speak poetically that much anymore. We truncate our speech, right? We... we shorten we don't use metaphors or symbolism right so it is kind of interesting you know to figure what what, what that line is right and what that mm-hmm. comfort is you know mm-hmm. yeah all right well thanks very much for your time yeah that was great good luck with the show yeah a streetcar named desire starts next wednesday may 19th and runs till saturday may 22nd it begins at 9 p.m at the corner of adenac and woodland streets which is near commercial and venables And for more information and tickets, go to the website www.leakyheaven.com and click on Upcoming. We'll be back. The North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conference takes over Toronto once again, June 16th to the 20th. North by Northeast showcases the best new music from around the world across dozens of genres. Rock, hip-hop, punk, country, blues, electronica, singer-songwriter, and more. It's your chance to catch breakout performances from tomorrow's stars. Five days, 50 stages, over 600 bands, plus 35 great music-related films, all for only 50 bucks. Wristbands are now on sale. Also available, full festival passes for North by Northeast industry conferences featuring celebrity interviews and networking sessions. 
The North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conferences, June 16th to the 20th, taking place in the heart of Toronto, Ontario. Visit www.nxne.com for tickets and up-to-the-minute festival information. All right, Bloodied but Unbowed by Suzanne Tabata shows tomorrow at DOXA, the Documentary Film Festival. On the heels of Skate Girl and 49 Degrees, Suzanne Tabata returns with her first documentary feature, Bloodied but Unbowed. Profiling the early punk scene in Vancouver as told by the surviving legends who made it happen, Tabata has developed and produced many educational programs for young audiences in Areas of social justice. Credited as a producer on Jason Priestley's Bare Naked in America, Tabata is a digital media producer and small format production specialist. Suzanne broke out as a director with the documentary on the subculture of Canadian surfing, 49 Degrees. Fuel TV Los Angeles picked up the doc, inviting Tabata to enter a filmmaking contest, and she was one of 10 directors chosen from over 250 to make a film. The film Skate Girl is a history of women's professional skateboarding. I spoke to Suzanne at a recent Doxa Media preview, but first, here's a description of the film Bloodied But Unabowed. Long before condominium developments and mortgage payments became the became the favorite topic of conversation in Vancouver, the city was a far different place. In the late 70s and early 80s, when the smiling Buddha still glowed beneficently on East Hastings, cops were on the pad and the Squamish Five were taking direct action with dynamite in the name of anarchy and social change. Punk music had reared its ragged, rancid head and let forth a rebel howl. Director Suzanne Tabata returns to her roots with Bloodied But Unbowed, the first in-depth chronicle of Vancouver's original punk scene. Distinct from London, New York and L.A., Vancouver punk has eclectic, raw, politically charged, relentless, and at times comedic uh, leather, spit, beer, drugs, sex, and a righteously enraged music terrified the mainstream. Bands like DOA, Subhumans, Young Canadians, and others helped forge the city's reputation as an alternative mecca, attracting and influencing the likes of Kurt Cobain, former Guns N' Roses bassist Duff McKagan, and the hardcore king of all media, Henry Rollins. Bloodied but Unbowed is packed with short stories from the city's raw coming of age, from the great lost poet of punk Art Bergman to DOA's yippee-influenced Destroy Candidate concert in Stanley Park to the hybrid of punk rock, modern art, and gay culture, to the essence of F-bands. There are also undercurrents brought to light in the film, personal stories of love and loss, rebellion and regret, told through romance and political action. Um, so, let's hear the interview with Suzanne Tabata. So, uh, what inspired you to make this film? 30 years ago, uh, 32 years ago, I was a student at UBC in the radio station CITR, and we used to playlist uh, the music from this particular scene. And uh, it was uh, an extremely vibrant time. I don't think that, uh, certainly in my, in my view, I've seen anything like this since in Vancouver. And uh, it's a great story. Um, I feel that it's time to tell it because this is about a music scene that has never really been recognized. Mm. 
and uh, it's time for it to be recognized before the people that are uh, drive before the people that drive the story die out. And some some people have uh, are not with us today, but those that are, the surviving stars that are with us are able to tell the story. So I thought it was going to be. I think it's a really great tribute to a piece of Canadian culture and uh, Vancouver music culture that deserves to be told. And, and how influential has it been to the music scene in general? Well, you know, you should ask the couple guys behind me because they're musicians and they'll be able to tell you more. But I think that what you'll see if you come to see the film is you'll see the connection to what was then called the underground punk scene um, in North America. And those ties were very, very strong. And although nobody in Vancouver uh, really knew that this scene existed, there were incredible ties in the in the musical underground that permeated um, all aspects of uh, early punk music, up and down, particularly the coast of north, uh, north the west coast of North America, and across the United States. So, what's happened now? Is it just that times have changed, or was was it uh, a movement that was specific to its time, or are there other reasons why it's sort of faded away? Um, every scene, uh, every scene has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I think every scene dies a natural death. And the same can be said for for anything, whether you're part of a um, uh, a niche art movement, whether you're part of a certain type of skateboarding culture. Um, or a music scene, so I wouldn't really stand up and say this is the only thing that Vancouver's ever done. Um, I think this is something that I was witness to and I was on the periphery of experiencing and being part of, and as I've um, developed my skills as a documentary filmmaker over the over the years um, I think that this story has been in the back of my mind to tell and what's next for you as a documentary filmmaker I don't know right now I don't know I think that um, I can't say actually Too early to say. I, yeah yeah I can't say <laughs> but you should ask these guys behind yeah, you to. about the the music because one of them is Jim Cummins who really is the um, He's the Andy Warhol of Vancouver, and he's alive to tell about it. And he created a lot of the look of the punk scene. And then there's Randy Rampage, who's the original bass player from DOA, and he was a very, very influential um, musician yeah. at the time. And they're both sort of known as being kind of gritty and, and on the edge. And I think they would be really great interviews for you for this. They're here. They're here to support the film, and they're both in it. Perfect. In a big way. So I took Suzanne's advice, and I did speak to the two of them. And here is uh, Jim Cummins. You'll hear him first, and Randy Rampage next. What I'd like to know is what, what, makes, it, what makes it special? What makes the punk scene in Vancouver in that time unique from something happening in another city or another form of music? Well, I think one thing you, you got to like, West Coast was good because it's always sort of been things like that. The other thing, too, is you need a city not too big. So I think in Vancouver, all the groups were too small to kind of throw, yeah, throw a big party on their own. So they had to come together like animals at a watering hole. So you got all these strange be beasts at the same place right. being relatively polite to each other. But in our case, to be at the warehouse parties and stuff. And there was a lot of exchange of ideas and energy. And you had everyone... 
every little scene had to be there to make one big scene, and that made a synergy that's made a film 20, 30 years later, you know? Yeah. So what's going on now? I mean, music hasn't died, has it? Yeah, we're not dead yet, so... Exactly. <laughs> Do you see me on the floor, or what? Oh, you're still here. You might in a minute, if I get another couple of wine. Yeah, you know, but... No, no. I mean, it's still going on. There's a lot of people still still doing music. I mean, uh, the same thing. But uh, like what Jim was saying, with the way it went before was we were a small town. Vancouver at that time was was basically a small city. I mean, it was considered a small city, and we were just like dumb kids, like suburb kids, right? Who wanted to, you know, do something like cool? You know, who wanted to do something cool? <laughs> And all of a sudden, boom, it happened. You know, it happened, and it, and it went through. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people appreciated it. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, like, uh, how many people around the world know of Vancouver yeah. just for, the, for that punk rock scene, for the punk rock scene. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, I think that would surprise people is, is, is the influence that the scene has had. But, you know, when you have a scene like that that creates an energy like that, a lot of people drop dead. It is. We, yeah. lost, we lost a lot of people in the process, which is always sad. Sure. So, uh, uh, you know, a note to them and all that. Um, yeah. But uh, then, uh, then you kind of wind up in a backwater for a while. You kind of get a wash for a while. You kind of lo- lo- lose your footing as this tsunami of energy kind of re- recedes, you know. And then... Uh, we all, I mean, Randy should have kept going with DOA now, and everything. Now like we're this, all you know? going to be like, now Now Jim and I are going to be like Neil Young or something, and we're all going to, you know, we're going to come back for yeah. the, 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 70, the the 70 year old tour, hey, you know? I'm like, still trying to get these effing songs played right for once. 50, so yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. These, so, these songs have never been played quite right yet, so here we go one more time again. Yeah, I'm going to try to get it right this time. That's awesome. With all and, the energy. And do you think it's gotten easier today or harder? I mean, you know, there's another film here, uh, No Fun City, and um, it sounds like you're saying back then it, it, it was it was a little because Vancouver was smaller. It was no, still No Fun City. Really? We didn't do anything. Everything we did was illegal. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It was too, yeah, totally true. I mean, fuck, you couldn't, you couldn't. It's not like now. You couldn't walk the streets. You walk the streets looking like me or him then, and you'd be arrested like like in, in, in two seconds. Now, it's like fucking. Hey, that's it's, it's just like whatever, right? Every, guys every, jump every out kid does it. Every kid does it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty liberal and cool now, which is great. You know, great to see that come about. But you know, I, I, I've still got uh, something in me that's still not done with this whole thing, and I don't think anybody. As I the old phrase got, goes, I haven't seen got, nothing yet. Yeah. We've got a lot. Yeah. We've got a lot yet to say. Now. Tomorrow's showing of Bloodied But Unbowed is sold out, I'm afraid. Some rush tickets may be available at the door, but your best bet is Sunday, when there will be a special repeat screening of five films, including Bloodied But Unbowed, as well as others such as Crude Sacrifice, which we talked about on last week's show, No Fun City, The Experimental Eskimos, and Boss Beyond the Red Light. For more info on that, please go to www.doxafestival.ca. Doxa is D-O-X-A, festival.ca. Here's a little bit of DOA with New Wave Sucks.
All right, moving on. On May 19th, the Firehall Arts Center is having its annual fundraiser dinner. There's, they're also paying tribute to five special individuals who have made a great contribution to the Firehall and to the arts community in general. Those being honored include longtime arts patron, community builder, and former Carnegie Community Center Executive Director Michael Clegg, well-known actor, writer, director, and former Firehall board member Dennis Simpson, award-winning choreographer, teacher, and founding board member of the Dance Center, Grant Stratty, longtime patron and financial consultant for the Fire Hall, Abdul Alibi, and retired businessman and internationally respected translator of more than 40 Canadian plays such as The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, 1000 Cranes, Waiting for the Parade, and The Tomorrow Box into Japanese, and five Japanese plays into English, Toyoshi Yoshihara. I spoke with Donna Spencer, the artistic director of the Fire Hall, about the tribute recipients as well as about the Fire Hall and its future. Tell me why these five people. Uh, we started, I'll just give you some context for mm-hmm. where this came about. We started honoring people in our, um, with our 25th anniversary season. We decided that one way to sort of pay tribute to the people that had helped the fire hall get to its 25th anniversary would be to honor them at a dinner. So we started from there and we went, you know what? Maybe it wouldn't hurt <laughs> to say thank you to people annually, and, um, and and it felt good. I mean, after the first time we did it, it was a wonderful event. People uh, went, oh, wow, I didn't know so much went into making a successful organization like the Fire Hall. Mm-hmm. The second time we did it, again, the same kind of response. This year, um, we went, well, okay, um, who who out there has been had some kind of influence on the work we do and the work where we do it? And... Uh, that's kind of how we came to these five guys. I mean, Michael Clegg has had a tremendous impact or had a tremendous impact on the downtown east side when he was at Carnegie in terms of encouraging community arts activity in the neighborhood and bringing attention to the fact that there were lots and lots of artists living down here. Abdul Alibi, longtime supporter of the Fire Hall. He's helped us sort of manage, well, he's, he's been our auditor. His company was our auditor, but through his wisdom and guidance, helped keep us financially afloat. Um, and uh, both Dennis Simpson and Grant Stratty are a tremendous artist. Dennis was on the board for the Fire Hall for six years, as well as co-directing a number of projects with me. And right now, he is, um, I'm working on it, we're working on a project together that we will premiere here at the Fire Hall in the uh, uh, February of 2011. Um, so there's a long-time relationship there. He was in our production of You're in Town, the musical, and a uh, good connection. Grant Stratis had his choreography uh, presented here. He's also been a great advisor um, to the overall community and supporter of dance, and we do a lot of contemporary dance here at the Fire Hall. And then the last person, Yoshi Yoshihara, people would go, well, you haven't really done a project with him, but it's kind of, this is a man who started coming to the fire hall years and years ago. He comes to see our work. Uh, he supports what we do, but he supports Canadian playwrights, which is really exciting to me. He he 
takes pieces, translates them into Japanese, and sees that they get a production in Japan. And that is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, the last time I saw him, he was here to see our production of Debt the Musical and wants to translate that into Japanese because he feels the subject matter is universal. And um, so we'll see what happens. Uh, and, and a few years ago, closing night of uh, our production of The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, um, Yoshi arrived with nine of the actors who had done the production in Japan. Uh, he translated the Ecstasy of Rio into Japanese. They arrived here for our closing night performance with a wonderful uh, keg of sake <laughs> <laughs> and some amazing pr- pr- pictures of their production. And I, 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 so it's like that's why these five guys. I mean, they have been amazingly supportive of what the fire hall does, but they're also people that are are reach beyond what they themselves do through helping community. I'm curious about, you know, you've been involved with the Fire Hall <laughs> since 1982, is that right? Since, That's since right. the very beginning. With that context of, of the, those many years, how what, what's going on today? I, I wonder, you know, when you come to your desk every morning, what are the issues that are, are most pressing to you? Well, <laughs> I guess the most pressing one is always to stay stay fresh and aware that there's lots of different things going on in the world because it's very easy to sort of fall into a rut. Mm. But um, I have to say I've always been a very curious person, so I have no um, no trouble finding new things to get myself involved in. Um, the biggest pressing issue right now, I think, is a province-wide one, and that is the, um, the funding cuts to the arts and the impact that uh, the, the provincial government's uh, choice to cut social service programs and not as well as the arts uh, from gaming uh, re- re- resources uh, mm-hmm. has had a huge impact already this year mm-hmm. and we'll have an even bigger one next year as people go into their next seasons without that money. So my, that's the most pressing, pressing issue we have to deal with within the arts is trying to stay afloat right mm-hmm. now. Um, the fire hall. Uh, this is uh, this dinner is also a fundraiser for the fire hall. So if people want to come out and support these great guys and say thank you to them, that's wonderful. But also, they can thank uh, thank us. I guess that sounds kind of weird by helping us um, continue to be here in the downtown east side. I, I don't. I'm not saying that we're in desperate straits, mm-hmm. but um, the the cuts that are coming down from the government are so severe that our program will be limiting next year by them. And it's possible that in uh, a few years, if the cuts stay the way they are, uh, a lot of the arts that happen in the community will not be happening. And I think it's uh, fair to say that I know social services are hurting. I know education is hurting. I health. Um, and I'm not quite sure um, how we can turn all of those things around without without involving the arts, because the arts is, is a factor in all of those things. And on that note, what what is exciting in the arts today? Like, what's happening in theater and dance and other forms of art that um, that you think are are exciting? I think I think Vancouver is amazing in terms of the amount of talent we have here, the amount of creative thinkers that we have, the 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 dancers, the singers, the visual artists, the the theater makers. Uh, it's it's so amazing to me that we have this huge cultural Olympiad and. Uh, Right after that, of course, the arts groups found out that they were being severely cut. Mm. Um, we have a, a spirit, a cultural and artistic spirit out here that is fairly amazing, I think, because the the, uh, the funding level here at the province has never been very good. 
So I would like to say that I think uh, if people really want to get a sense of what's going on um, in theater dance, that they maybe come by uh, the fire hall um, on the long weekend because we have our big uh, performing arts fair going on. And uh, Yeah, tell me about that. It's called BC Buds, and it's called the uh, Fire Hall Spring Performing Arts Fair. And uh, it is an opportunity for people to see readings, readings of new plays, um, excerpts of dance works, uh, short theater pieces, music pieces. I think we have a magician. We have <laughs> uh, all sorts of quirky kind of new um, new uh, new voices going on. Um, part of the festival or the fair is really to give opportunity for people to try things. So we have a performance that's happening in the basement, some that are happening in the hallway, some that are happening at the Vancouver Police Museum and at Ironworks and St. James Anglican Church. And it's an opportunity. It's all free. People can come in and check out some of the new voices that are that are creating work, as well as some of the established artists that are just testing new work. Uh-huh. Do you feel that there's any risk in that, in in, in allowing new voices and, and new groups and artists to come up and giving them a spotlight? Isn't that risky? What if they're not very good? Uh, well, you know, they might not be, but you know, <laughs> you know what? Uh, research and development is, is just as important to the arts as is. is to any industry, um, we have to give people a chance to try things in front of audiences. I mean, the performing arts don't work without audiences. Their audiences are key, a key part of creating uh, um, a performing arts piece. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I think by the fact that this work is all free as well. I mean, if somebody was paying $50 and coming to see a show, obviously you want to give them a polished piece. Mm-hmm. The artists that are coming to the arts fair still want to give a polished piece but it is a work in progress generally so it's it's audiences are more accepting they're also more interested in finding out how things can grow into a full-length piece mm-hmm. or they get a chance to dialogue with the artist after and say you know, i didn't quite get that what were you trying to do mm-hmm. so it's quite an exciting sharing of of uh, information because the artists artists and the audiences are all in the same building it's not like they're a uh, hundred feet off on a stage, <laughs> um, so it's it's I don't know. I've, this is our sixth, and it's pretty pretty amazing. And yes, there's some pieces that just don't work, and there's some pieces that are brilliant. And um, I you know I have to say that I've gone to events in other places, and I've seen things that are brilliant and some that aren't, and I've often had to pay for those. <laughs> so I kind of go mm, okay. So that happens anyway. That happens anyway. Yeah. And sometimes things are brilliant, and you just they're not just brilliant for you. They're brilliant for somebody else, and you just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And how about this 12-minute uh, max? What is that? 12 Minutes Max is a wonderful project that we do with uh, the Dance Center. It's, um, uh, it's done by audition. People have to audition, and we pick three or two or three curators from the community to actually watch the auditions, select the work, and put it into a performance, um, shape it into a presentation. None of the work can be longer than 12 minutes, and it can be from theater, dance, or music, and uh, or interdisciplinary, and we've even had film shown. Um, and it's this is, I think, our 12th year of doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, again, it's an opportunity for artists to test their work, um, whether it be an established artist or an emerging artist. And... Uh, audiences love it because it's like a huge potpourri of you never know what you're going to see next because it's not it's not um 
connected by any one theme other than all the work has to be 12, less than 12 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a hint about what's, uh, what's in the works for next season? Uh, yeah, we have a great season. <laughs> God willing and the creek don't rise. Um, yeah, we have a great season. We're hoping that all the funding falls into place for it. Uh, we start out with uh, a dance work from Kinesis Dance um, and move into uh, a wonderful piece called Thunderstick, which uh, stars Lauren Cardinal and uh, Craig Lazon. And it's a comedy about two journalists. One's, one's a photojournalist and one's a... Uh, a written uh, writer, um, and they're on the track of some intrigue in the federal government. Um, And it's a very funny piece written by Kenneth Williams, but what's really intriguing about this version is these actors swap roles every night. So you could come see it twice, and you'd see two different pieces because they're both very versatile actors. Um, And then we have a piece that we're developing with Vancouver Moving Theatre, which I mentioned earlier that Dennis Simpson... Savannah Walling and myself are co-writing called High Flying Bird, which is a piece that takes you back into um, the downtown Eastside Strathcona era uh, when area when um, there were more African Canadians living in the neighborhood and there was a club scene and mm-hmm. theater scene and so it's a flashback kind of piece. So that's, a, that's another production we're working on. Well, thanks very much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. This special tribute event will take place at the Flota Seafood Restaurant on Wednesday, May the 19th, and that's at 180 Kiefer Street, and includes a delicious dinner served at 6.30 p.m. Doors open at 5.30. Tickets for the dinner are only $75, a tax donation receipt for $50 will be given, or $600 for a table of 10, with a tax donation receipt of $350. And can, tickets can be purchased at, uh, at the website www.firehallartscenter.ca all one word and you can also find out on that website more about BC Buds and 12 Minutes Max on the website firehallartscenter.ca Next week, I'll have a conversation with one of the honorees, Grant uh, Stratty, the legendary choreographer, teacher, and arts administrator. And we will be right back after this message that I will play any second now. Any second now. (laughs) CITR 101.9 FM is proud to support the third annual Canada International Mariachi Festival, Friday, May 7th at the Chan Centre at UBC. Experience the excitement and culture of some of the best international mariachi performers, musicians, and dancers, including five mariachi bands from Mexico, the United States, and Canada. The third annual Canada International Mariachi Festival, Friday, May 7th at the Chan Centre at UBC. More information and tickets at mariachifestival.ca. All right. For the first time, acclaimed BC filmmaker and visual artist Brian Johnson charts an artistic landscape of BC, uncovering the work of 19 BC-based artists in the documentary Cartographies, premiering Monday, May 17th, 2010, at 10 p.m. on the Knowledge Network.
Cartographies explores the work of several B of VC's leading artists in a variety of disciplines and explores how each artist's approach and style is influenced by where they live in British Columbia, examining both the challenges and inspirations of their geographic surroundings. Featured artists include visual artist Stan, Stan Douglas, musician Jesse Zubot, singer-songwriter Veda Hill, dancer and choreographer Crystal Pitt, Pite, sorry, writer Michael Turner, filmmaker Fumiko Kiyuki, theater performer Paul Turnies, and painter Rene Van Halm all of whom choose to live and work on the northwest frontier that is British Columbia. And here is a conversation I had with Brian Johnson. Basically, knowledge came to us with uh, the idea of making a, a film about BC artists, very generally, but with the formal caveat that it... it had to be one film, but also kind of many short films. Mm. So that so they wanted that from the outset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was um, our formal exercise or challenge, right, in, mm -hmm. in the making of this film, was to make it um, uh, like, like a, a patchwork kind yeah, of like thing, a collection uh, that that works as a whole, but also kind of as individual pieces. Mm. When they gave us that 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 sort of framework to work within, we then said, okay, well, let's not bother trying to make any other connection with these artists other than the fact that they live in BC. Mm -hmm. And in fact, let's push the limits of how uh, different and distinctive we can make each mm -hmm. piece. BC is a, a, an interesting place because it's really kind of the frontier still. Mm. It's, it's kind of the last... Um, the last end of, of Western culture and the way that it's um, moved across North America. And, um, and it's kind of provincial and it's sort of isolated. Mm. Um, and it's certainly not the center of the art world. Mm. So I think the one thing is that for people, artists, to be living and working here, uh, it's a very conscious choice on their part. Right. There's always, which doesn't... It's always there. It's always there, that, that notion. Yeah, and I, and I mean, not just that, but they... But off, often that choice um, maybe doesn't have as much to do with art as you would think. Maybe it has to do with lifestyle. Maybe it has to do with other things. Mm -hmm. So a thesis, I guess, we were working with was was that you know, maybe artists in BC have uh, maybe more a, freedom. Well, a bit of a broader uh, point of view, mm -hmm. right? A bit of a bit of a broader set of interests, and I just I think that makes for good art. I think you know when when you're open to different activities, influence, mm -hmm. you know, when you're not just focused on uh, the narrow world mm -hmm. of art in New York City or in London or wherever, you're, you're taking in more uh, mm -hmm. stimulus. And, and, you know, with technology and whatnot the way it is today, you really, you can still tap into that world. What does improvisation mean in the context of documentary filmmaking? Traditionally, in the world of filmmaking, everything you do is about trying to um, control, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, but ultimately, there's only so much you can control, mm -hmm. and particularly in the world of documentary. Now, of course, this film isn't strictly documentary, but right. through all of my work, there's this there's this um, acceptance mm -hmm. of chaos and chance. And I think just through the acceptance of it, um, you know, you kind of embrace it, right? And, and it just happens? Well, yeah, can you give me an happens. example? Like, I wonder, like, uh, for example, there's the first few sort of clips are about the, the, they're almost sort of interview format. You know, the artist speaks and we yeah. hear them. And then there's that, that dance and it just speaks for itself. There's no, there's no narration. The yeah. artist doesn't. And it, I wonder, if, can you give me an example of, of how that improvisation, like, do you go in there and you meet the artist and you, with one idea and realize, well, scrap that, I'll just, I'll just film her dancing? Well, with the, in terms of the Crystal Pipe piece, the dance piece, um, no, it was, the intention was always to, sh to just shoot her dancing. There was never mm -hmm. any intention of having any, um, any other way. interview or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe... A piece that would be more uh, instructive would be the Stan Douglas piece, mm -hmm. where um, I've worked with Stan before on a couple of his projects. So I know Stan, mm -hmm. I know his process a little bit, as much as anyone could, and maybe as much as anyone could. But, um, and, I mean, Stan is a, is a brilliant guy who's very uh, deliberate, and a lot of his work is... Um, well, it's so technical that you almost feel like you're engaging in um, like some sort of science project mm -hmm. or or math. I mean, I'm always blown away. I also work as a DP, and you know, normally that's about lighting, and it's a very there's a math to it, but yeah. it's also very uh, intuitive, and okay. it's very it's a very aesthetic process. But whenever I work with uh, Stan, I end up having to figure out these crazy mathematical like kind of equations and <laughs> it becomes this very technical cerebral process. So <clears throat> with Stan's piece, I wanted, to, that's what I wanted to have that piece be about was his work and how, um, how strictly technical it can be. And, but then it, in the making of it and the shooting of it and, and it, it shifted, um, and what I found was really fascinating about particular work that he was doing at the time that, you know, that kind of the piece on him is about was the history of this building, mm -hmm. the second hotel Vancouver. Right. And, um, and just how telling that history is in terms of Vancouver's culture, mm -hmm. Vancouver's, um, the way that Vancouver deals with its uh, historical culture mm -hmm. and 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 architecture, and, or it doesn't, or, or doesn't, yeah. So so really midstream, that whole the whole uh, kind of focus of that piece shifted. How about the uh, the electric company one? It's almost like uh, it's kind of cinematic, right? It's, yeah, totally. Was that was that the intention from the outset mm -hmm. to make a almost like a film? Yeah. Basically, that's a, a condensed, that's the abridged version of a play that they did um, a few years ago, a one-man play with Jonathan Young. What was it called? It was called The Palace Grand. So, yeah, basically the, the intention there was to 
cram that into a three-minute short film hmm. and sort of distill it. And and that's kind of that was the intention with a lot of these pieces was to find find like um, an aspect of the artist's work or one particular work or some aspect of the artist's personality and just focus on that one small thing. Obviously, three minutes isn't a lot of time, so we didn't. We really were careful to not try and bite off too much mm, um, and just kind of try and look at one thing and really uh, focus on that, condense it. Cartographies premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on the Knowledge Network and will repeat on Tuesday, May 18th at 11 p.m. And that was Brian Johnson, the filmmaker. We'll be right back. The Seed Productions Foundation is proud to present An Evening with Deepak Chopra. On the heels of two new releases, the New York Times best-selling author Deepak Chopra will bring his message of well-being to Vancouver on June the 4th. Dr. Chopra is acknowledged as one of the world's leaders in mind-body medicine and has been described as the poet-prophet of alternative medicine. He will talk about his latest works, Reinventing the Body, Resurrecting the Soul, How to Create a New You, and the ultimate happiness prescription, the seven keys to joy and enlightenment. An evening with Deepak Chopra at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, Friday, June 4th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets online at ticketmaster.ca. And when we experience that, you'll be extremely ecstatic. You'll be extremely joyful because this is the real you. And that equals nirvana. The fifth Arab Latin fiesta is fast approaching on Friday, May 14th. The sounds, smells, and tastes of the sensual Middle Eastern uh, and seductive Latin worlds are combined in a night of dinner. Fixed menu, reservations required, hookahs, and two performances by Karen Flamenco and belly dancers Siobhan Corey and Lana Gabor, Vancouver's finest in their field. Back from a three-year hiatus, the Arab Latin Fiesta events were created by female business owners Hen Lizra of Latitos Productions and Mona Chaban of Mona's fine lesbian Lebanese cuisine, excuse me, and were attended by 300 people each night during the event's three-year run from 2005 to 2007. I met with Hen Lizra of Latitos Productions and she told me all about the event. Fiesta is basically an event that mixes the world of the belly dancing in the Middle East together with the dancing from Latin America and the world of Latin America, mm. right? So you've got basically two different cultures that mix really well together. Do they? Yeah, because um, the Middle, e- Middle Eastern people and Latin people have a lot in common. It's uh, the family-oriented attitude. It's that sense of community of always like to be together. Mm. It's that uh, attitude of being very open, very warm. It's being a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more rough. Mm. Um, communication that's more direct. You know, so sexiness is more allowed outward. So there's a lot of um, things that just click, right? Like I'm Middle Eastern. I hang out all the time with Latin people. I feel at home with them. Take me through uh, what happens in the night. Right, so it, at, at, at Mona's Lebanese cuisine, not just any restaurant, and the, 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 
the restaurant is really cool because it's set up like an oasis, right? You've got like the curtains coming down and you've got the cushions. So like when you sit, you, some are chairs, but some of them are actually kind of like almost like sofas that you lean on mm. and with lower tables and stuff like that. So the atmosphere itself creates that sense of really being in the Middle East with carpets on, you know, just, just as we would have in the Middle East. Um, you have a beautiful feast, Lebanese feast. We have a, a fixed menu. And then basically what we do is we have uh, 7 to 9.30 people do dinner. Then we have 9.30 to 10, we have the first show because we have two shows. From 10 to 11, it's the party. From 11 to 11.30, we have the second show. And then you have a party till 2 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. So what kind of shows are you offering? Well, the first event, we have um, Emily and Lana are going to do a show of belly dancing. Some of them are going to dance together. Some of them are going to do solo. Some of them are going to seduce the crowd into the uh, dance floor. Then we have Karen Flamenco, who's one of the most passionate dancers in the city. She's going to come with also some of her students and a guitar player, and they're going to do a really beautiful flamenco show. That's for this coming Friday. For the 18th, we have Lana and Siobhan, who are going to perform, so different show uh, for the belly dancing and then and, and again they're going to do something completely different they also work with veils and, and a sword and, and different things and a drum and then we have Portala Tango who's going to do uh, it's like husband and a wife duo and they have this beautiful passionate thing going on between them and they're going to tell a little story through the tango which is going to start with a spotlight on them and a mic story and stuff like that like so they takes you a little bit into Argentina back in Argentina mm-hmm. so you'll be one in one event and the Middle East, and then in Spain, and then the other one you'll be in Argentina, and again the Middle East, and then we'll see. And so people can come, they can enjoy the dinner, and then can they get involved in the dancing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's there's two different things. In right. the shows, not. Yeah. <laughs> Unless your professional dancer has been booked, no. The shows are basically bringing two different shows. So you have a half hour and a half hour. It's always one belly dancing show and something Latin. So for the event for this Friday, we have... Uh, belly dancing show with two belly dancers and then we have also a flamenco show mm. but we're doing another event June 18th and we're doing two belly dancers one show and we're not always doing two belly dancers this time we want a different concept and a beautiful tango show that's going to be with the story and stuff like that mm. so every time we do something different to kind of spice it up but like between 10 and 11 there would be the party where people can get up and dance and you have Persian music and Arabic music and bachata and merengue and salsa and reggaeton. So you've got the mix from both of the, the, the cultures together and the same after the second party till 2 a.m. Mm. Have you done something like this before, like at Mona's? Yeah, we actually, we used to run these events up to about three years ago. They were a huge hit. We used to be completely sold out with like about 300 people there. Um, and then I got super busy with business school, so I had no time mm-hmm. <laughs> to do any more because as it is I'm running my business and this was just like another thing that I was doing it was in the actual business and uh, now that I've graduated it's time to bring them back uh-huh. it's yeah. the return it's the return yes <laughs> exactly uh, and you're what is, tell me about the company that you're a part of my company mm-hmm. uh, Latidos Productions yeah tell me about um, that Latinos Production is basically a company that brings all the sexiness and flirting from Cuba to Vancouver because there's a, a lot of culture missing in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. There's pretty much, you know, Chinese culture, there's like the Canadian stuff, there's Indian stuff, and that's the most dominant ones, maybe one more, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, whereas in a lot of cities that are very international, you have real flavors. You go to restaurants and you feel like you're in a completely different country. You go to parties and you feel like you've entered a different world. You know, go to New York. <laughs> See what goes on, right? Whereas 
Vancouver really lacks in that sense culture. So this is basically what brought this whole concept about. Is it was about bringing and creating stuff here that didn't exist. So Tuesday Production does that through dance classes, but mm-hmm. we are also doing that through events. So when you go to an event like the Arab Latin Fiesta and you walk into it, you don't feel like you're in Canada. You feel like you stepped away, right? Because people behave in, in like they're in their own culture, mm-hmm. right? And this is what makes something intriguing and interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of surprised by, by what you're saying about uh, you know bringing more culture. I think people would think that Vancouver is a very multicultural city. Is it? Do you think that it's maybe dominated by like uh, you know there's the, the South Asian, the Chinese, and sort of the the usual suspects in Vancouver? Do you think? Do you, are you after more diversity? Yes, exactly. I'm not saying there isn't culture. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, or if I did, that's not what I mean. What I mean to say is that we definitely need more variety, right? Because mm-hmm. it feels like there's like three different flavors or four different flavors yeah. and that's it it's more and it's, they're beautiful it's not like they're not beautiful it's not like I don't think that that should continue no on top of that not yeah. instead of that right yeah. I think like I lived in Montreal I lived in Toronto I lived in Japan I lived in Israel you know it's like you go places like even um, even go to Toronto and you'll see like Italian super strong section of Italy you'll go you know what you know what I mean like yeah. there's so many other cultures, you'll see so many Latin people there. So that, that Latin flavor is like you have the Caribana, which is like a huge festival. It's like, you know what I mean? Whereas here, everything is like very small in that sense and, and doesn't have a lot of power. And because of that, sometimes you don't feel like you're getting to see or experience other cultures here in that intensity mm-hmm. as you do in other cities, for example. And so do you think people are receptive to that? You were saying before that when you held this event before, it was um, you know, sold out with tons of people. Is there is there an audience for um, more? Well, in the past we've done really well. I can't tell you yet. We haven't run <laughs> we'll the first one after. exactly. We'll know this Friday, but hopefully it will be the same as before. I mean, the concept didn't come with us saying, "Let's do something in the city so that we have more culture." It started with people kind of demanding something that kind of led to that, right? And this is usually what leads me to create in Latinx Productions kind of things is that I hear what people are kind of going like, mm, "I like this, I like that," and when there is enough of a feeling like something's there then we usually create them. So um, I think that there's definitely room for a lot more in Vancouver. There are a lot, because you hear a lot of people complain about that. Yeah. Especially people that go traveling a lot. They come back and go like, wow, you know, I miss I miss this, I miss that, I miss... And I think there's definitely, but definitely people should come and support things like that because if not, we won't have a lot of cultural things in the city. Mm. Great, thank you very much. You're welcome. The Arab Latin Fiesta will be at Mona's fine Lebanese cuisine, not lesbian cuisine. That's something else entirely. The address is 1328 Hornby Street, and you have two options. You can come for the dinner and the dancing for $37, and that includes a fixed menu dinner for $37, or you can come just for the dancing portion at 9.30 p.m. for $15. Miners are welcome. There is a hookah room, delicious food, hot dancing. Sounds like a lot of fun. For more info, go to www.latidosproductions.com and to reserve for the dinner component, call this number. That's This is Mona's at 604-689-4050. That's 604-689-4050. That's the end of the Arts Report for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Adam Janusz. This is CITR 101.9 FM. Real to Real is coming up next.
The Calgary Folk Music Festival, a dreamlike balance of urban and bucolic, friendly and far out, super fly and earthy. Pioneering musical godfathers and grandmothers, plus rebels, romantics, and revolutionaries of the current decade. July 22nd to 25th at Prince's Island Park. Let the music take you around the world. The Calgary Folk Music Festival. Visit calgaryfolkfest.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Real to Real at the Movies. Robert Waldman, back in action. Lots of new movies to talk about today. Going to begin by looking at a chiller, Nightmare on Elm Street, or to be more precise, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Bedtime gets a lot more uncomfortable thanks to 